This is Changing Healthcare, a podcast about accelerating transformation from change healthcare, where insights and technology meet to help make healthcare work better for everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Changing Healthcare, a podcast about accelerating transformation. I'm your host, Shelley Stevenson. On the show today, we're chatting with Amy Bakuber, the Director of Accreditation and Quality Assurance at Quartz Health Solutions and the Director of Medicare Operations also at Quartz, a five-star plan, is Mark Kirchberg. Quartz really has a mission to boost the quality of life of its members through wellness programs, expanded provider networks, community health services, and excellent customer service. Our guests today both work in different capacities to make sure that Quartz will achieve its mission to provide products and services to meet the needs of their dual eligible members. Now, Quartz has made a decision and been doing a lot of work to prepare to enter into a dual eligible special needs plan for members who are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. So I'd like to start out with asking you kind of to describe your roles at Quartz. Amy, you want to talk about what your role is at Quartz? Sure, Shelley. Thank you. My role at Quartz is to oversee our NCQA accreditation as well as our Medicare STARS performance and our provider credentialing. And I oversee the building of the model of care document for our dual special needs plan. That's awesome. And Mark, you want to talk about your role at Quartz as well? Sure, Shelley. Thank you. Yeah, I'm the director of the Medicare product line at Quartz. Not the senior director, but thank you, Shelley, for trying to further my career along a little bit earlier there. So, (laughs) no, my role is much like a lot of the product leadership roles for Medicare plans across the country. Overall strategy, product design overall product life cycle responsibility. And then the second arm, or if you will, of that responsibility is operational readiness. So my team will spearhead the readiness for 10-1 and 1-1 each year in, a, in partnership with our PMO. That's great. Well, I know some plans, both Medicare plans and some Medicaid plans in many states, are being required to offer dual eligible special needs plans if they want to keep in business for either their managed Medicaid or a Medicare plan that has 80% of the members that are already duly eligible. They have to start a dual eligible special needs plan. But you weren't pushed through that door. You made that decision on your own. Mark, you want to talk about how that decision came about, what the thinking was, what you did? It was around 2020. I had joined the organization in March of 2020. There was a lot of things happening in the country. And of course, the COVID pandemic was setting in. And near the end of 2020, we were looking at areas where we could grow and serve our community best. And the more we looked at DSNP, the more we couldn't find a reason why we should not be in that space, both from a financial performance opportunity perspective and the operational lift. We found it was significant, but it wasn't undoable. It wasn't unrealistic for us. And then we had to spend a little bit of time about answering that question, why? And our motto here at at Quartz is find the spark to create a life well-lived. And so if we're going to do that for our community, we need to look at underserved populations. And so all of this kind of came together hand in glove. 
Yeah, that's great. And I think the reasons people go into it are much healthier when you're making that voluntary decision. But it's a tough road either way. I mean, you make a tough decision to get into it for all the right reasons. And then the first thing you're confronted with, Amy, is creating something called a model of care. What the heck is that and how did you do it? The model of care was actually, was rather a fun journey on the creativity side. So the model of care fell into fell into my lap because it's very similar for health plans that are NCQA accredited under health plan accreditation. It follows a very similar format. And a model of care really is your roadmap on exactly how you are going to be running your DSNIP plan, or essentially your proposal for how you plan on running your DSNIP plan. The interesting journey that you have when you're creating a model of care document is you are being very realistic about what your plan can and cannot do, but you have to fit within the rules of what the final decent will be. Working internally with all of our stakeholders in partnership with Shelly and her team, without Shelly and her team, we would not have had the guidance and the wherewithal to do this because they really helped us navigate internally how to work within our departments, but to come up with a final product of very robust document that says exactly what Quartz plans on doing once we do operationalize and stand up our model or our decent plan. Yeah, the model of care is really a weird document. Way back when dual eligible special needs plans started, it was just find members who are poor, disabled, and eligible for Medicare. So you had the elderly folks who are also probably socioeconomically disadvantaged. You have younger folks that may be physically or mentally disabled for some reason and living at or below poverty level. So it's really the neediest of the needy folks that you can serve in a health plan that belong in a DSNIP. And they decided that in order to become a DSNIP, you didn't just have to apply to be a Medicare Advantage plan. You also had to put in a special application to be a DSNIP. And part of that application was to create what Amy was just talking about, the model of care. And unlike Gall, it's divided into four parts, not three parts. The first part is really describe your population, right? And how did you go about even beginning to do that kind of stuff, Amy? To describe our population, we really looked at looked at the data that we had for our Medicare and our Medicaid populations and took the data sliced and diced it to see exactly what kind of demographics, and then really looking at general demographic data at the state of Wisconsin. So seeing where our members lived, tying that back to data and outcomes to find some very high-level generalities on what types of conditions we might be focusing on. So it was fairly data-driven, but also looking at our current product lines that we knew would slightly either cross over potentially have members coming out of that population into our DSNP plan. So kind of finding membership that already aligns with what our DSNP will look like. Right. And then, of course, the second part of the model of care is really the care management piece. And in a DSNP, all of a sudden, the things that were simple about care management aren't anymore. The typical care management program looks at episodes of care Somebody's admitted to the hospital, they have something serious going on, you assign a care manager, work with them, get them back on their feet and back into care. That's not true of the DSNP. <laughs> the DSNP starts with the health risk appraisal. You want to talk about that, Amy? 
Oh, sure. So the health risk appraisal, that is the foundation of learning who your member is and how you will be partnering with them. The health risk appraisal gives you a snapshot of what their needs are so that we can prepare and usher the member through the right providers, help partner with the correct services that they need. The health risk assessment doesn't just look at physical health, but it looks at overall member well-being and where we would have opportunities to add outside of a traditional provider network, a very holistic service community benefit organization network of providers for our members. So it really forces us to look at our member differently on a very holistic piece. And it's the the relationship building part as well. We get to that member before they're an effective member and we build their trust and develop that relationship, which is absolutely critical. And of course, the DSNIP requires that not 50%, not 60%, 100% of all members have a health risk appraisal. And that's not an easy thing to do. Mark, how did you solve that problem at courts? Yeah, you're right. So there's a little bit more attention paid to the HRA for DSNIP plans in CMS's eyes. And so we took the advice of of Shelley here, and we implemented a process where we're going to collect HRA information at the point of sale. And that was a bit of a departure from normal process for us at Quartz, but we took the time and the guidance from CHC, and we think we've got a really strong process in place going into the selling season. It did involve a little bit of a software change, so we had to put an organization, a vendor, in our process that would actually make the HRA data collected at the point of sale consumable by our care management software. So there was a little bit of a grind there to kind of get a vendor in place, but all is well. And I think that we're feeling good about our positioning there. That's great. So within the care management process, as you said, Amy, it kind of starts with that health risk assessment of the whole person social determinants of health, physical, behavioral issues, just the whole whole person care assessment. Once you get a health risk appraisal, you analyze it to find out if this is a member that is at very high risk for needing a lot of care and service, medium risk, or very low risk. They're in pretty good shape. So you might find someone that has diabetes and cancer and they're homeless and they're supposed to be taking four different kinds of medications, that's somebody that's going to probably end up needing an awful lot of care. That's a high-risk person. Someone who maybe has diabetes and cancer, but they're pretty good about taking their meds, and they make most but not all of their doctor's appointments and lab work, maybe medium risk. And people who really are in good shape, they're at low risk. And so once you triage what comes in from that health risk appraisal, What happens is the care manager actually has to design an individualized care plan for every single member of your dual eligible special needs plan. And every care plan has to be agreed to collaboratively, right, with the member and the care manager. It's not, okay, you have to take these kinds of tests or you have to get these kinds of services. You set goals that are measurable for each person that they've agreed to help participate in making happen for themselves. It's tough stuff. You also have to have an interdisciplinary care team. Amy, can you address how that plays into the DSNIP? 
The interdisciplinary care team is a critical part of the member's full care and that partnership between courts and the member and the provider. That's the opportunity, and that's really the game changer with the dual special needs plan, where the interdisciplinary care team is tasked with communication is critical, um, sharing of data, sharing of information. It's the way that we're successfully able to partner with everybody involved. An interdisciplinary care team, we have to figure out how to communicate from the health plan to the member to the provider. And so it requires even different look at technology. In order to support a solid interdisciplinary care team, we internally went through and are actually just kind of continuing to wrap up rather large reorganization in our clinical services division because we found out internally we want to have our staff aligned correctly. We need to have everything on our side of the house aligned organizationally to be able to support this interdisciplinary care team. Yeah, it really makes a very powerful organizational impact once you get into the dual eligible special needs plan. Certainly, it has a big effect on medical and care management for sure. I remember, I think, Mark and Amy, when we first started having meetings, I think we had two or three people that were in those sessions. And the last time I looked, I think there were 28 people from courts working on the implementation kickoff. And I wonder, Mark, if you can talk about how starting a DSNP affected, for example, benefit design. Yeah, so you're right. We did have a cast of thousands by the end there. (laughs) And there was a little bit of organizational change curve that we had to bring the organization through get folks used to the idea of launching this product. In terms of benefit design, we really looked at the market to see what the local DSNP competition was offering and wanted to use that as base and understand that, hey, that's table stakes. And then we got involved with an exercise where we were like, okay, do we want to be better here or do we want to be down the middle of the road on that particular benefit? So that's the exercise that we went through. We are a HIDA SNP highly integrated dual eligible plan. So we are essentially running our dual plan as a fee-for-service replacement. And then our folks that are eligible for our plan are going to have Medicaid coverage to pick up the cost sharing. So we had to bring in our folks that are doing the system updates and the configuration and help them understand, okay, this is not Medicare Advantage where we're just short paying the fee schedule by $10 for a copay, we're actually replicating the 80-20 scheme for Part B, and here's the Part A structure. So those kind of conversations were held. Yeah, it has an impact all over the organization. How did it affect your broker training when you plopped in, hey, you're going to also do the health risk appraisal? (laughs) Yeah, so some of those conversations just, well, they're ongoing, actually. We've incentivized the brokers, so there's a financial incentive for that to be completed. But I'd say that most folks in the broker community are open to it. Obviously, when you're dealing with the brokers, you have to show them the value prop, right, and show them where it makes sense for both for their client, as the relationship is to them, and to them personally, right, and to their bottom line. So we feel like we've got a pretty good setup now. We don't think that we're overly administratively complicated with the new system that's going to collect the HRA. 
and we think that it makes sense, and we think the brokers think it makes sense, too, to collect that HRA right there. Yeah, I think that's really important to know the impact that this can have on the brokers as well. Interesting, your comments also on benefits, Mark. A lot of plans wrestle with how fancy do we get with the benefits, the supplemental benefits, because this is a very needy population, right? Food insecurity, housing insecurity, lots of mental health issues. How do we make their life better? How do we improve their health with some of the benefits that we want to offer? And interesting research that has come out indicates that not only what you offer as supplemental benefits, but the ease of access for your members to get those benefits. If you put up a supplemental benefit, let's say if you have personal emergency response system, but to get it, you have to have a prior authorization. People go, oh, wait a minute, why? What they want is how easy is it to access that? And that's one of the strengths I think courts has is making things very, very member friendly, treating people as real customers that are valued and making sure that they can access the care and benefits that they need. And I think that that played into your commitment to looking at how do we redesign all of the impacts this has organizationally. Enrollment certainly got affected, too. You can't just take the Medicare app, right, and and push it to CMS. You got a whole bunch of other steps you got to do in there now, right, Mark? So the enrollment subgroup team, I'm really happy for those guys. They had quite a Herculean type of challenge in front of them, <laughs> and they've solved. They really have. It comes down to, hey, what do we have in place to communicate with the state? So we have to verify state eligibility before we can enroll these members. And we have to verify that they have the proper eligibility as well. So it just builds that extra layer of process into the Medicare Advantage eligibility enrollment process. It was a tall task in our team. I'm really proud of those guys. Yeah. And you've already alluded to looking at the impact on claims processing because you're not just having people bill you and then bill the state. You're unifying how you're handling the claims for your providers. And it really had a big impact on network too, right? You're having to look at your network in a lot of different ways. Amy, you want to talk about how that has impacted your network? Sure. It's impacted our network on both the provider network space, and also the what we're calling the service benefit organization network space, which is everything that falls outside of traditional provider care. So we looked at our provider network for adequacy based on where we anticipate our membership growth to make sure that we do have enough adequate services available to meet the members' needs. The bigger lift, though, I do have to say on the network side is making sure our network is fully whole in order to support the members on the non-clinical side. We're very lucky to be associated and affiliated with other provider health systems that are very robust and they're very vested in this space in providing care to the underserved or those that might be enrolling or falling into our DSNIP plan. So we feel very comfortable with that. But what we're learning is also our provider health systems do have service networks also that they're building or working with. So we began to see things differently with these provider networks that transportation, food service vendors, even clothing distribution. We have a couple of disease management programs that are unique and that we're going to be starting 
and looking at how we can offer services or even bring them directly to this population. Unique ideas like doing blood pressure clinics and barbershops. That's part of the network that we're developing and brainstorming. I think the beauty of working with this population and this type of plan is it allows for a lot of creativity and really forces you to think about health insurance differently because their needs are they're different and unique than what we've seen before. Yeah, it, it, that's really exciting to hear because it, it, it is kind of an empty slate for you to create and craft for your members, for your network, for your environment, your health plan. What's going to work for these folks? And how do we make an impact on these lives, many of which have been broken or harmed? People that are really challenged socially, economically, and health-wise as a result as well. Poverty and the marginalized folks that get served in DSNPs and really leave it open to come up with, with great solutions. I think it also really had an impact, Mark, I know, on your IT, your software. You mentioned some of it around enrollment, but I, I think it also impacted care management software as well, right? That's correct. During our readiness assessment or gap analysis, and even at the end of 2020, and then when we engaged you, Shelley, it became pretty clear that we needed to upgrade our care management software. And so that was that was started around this time last year. So around October of 2021, we began looking for that vendor. And so that selection was made in early 2022. The new software, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert at it, but the care management folks seem pretty high on it. Amy, you may even know a little bit more about it, but essentially it allows our interdisciplinary care teams and care plans to be visible throughout the enterprise. And also, I believe it allows us the ability to adjust and edit plans in the teams, if you will, ahead of the start date of the members. So in that period when they enroll, but they're not quite effective, where we've got the ability to manage and, and um, adjust plans and teams. That's great. Amy, you want to add to that? I can definitely speak to the care management software. I'm a little bit closer to that. And I have to say that it's something to be prepared for a challenge. It's very unique. And going back to the care team and the requirement to have a team and all of the different points of communication, as you can imagine, we're dealing with lots of protected health information and the transfer of a lot of data. And electronic medical records tend not to be consistent between organizations. So really all of the behind the scene logistics related to getting care management software up and running, it's been a challenge. There seems to be an opportunity in this space for vendors, if they do this really well, to develop some great software. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, from your lips, that's a good thing. Just a couple of really broad questions for you, starting with you, Mark. What were the biggest challenges and surprises in this journey? Great question, Shelley. I think the biggest challenge probably was getting the organization ready for change around adjustment to process, right? So in addition to the understanding of what the DSNP is and and that this is going to happen and we need to ready ourselves, there was some reluctance to change. So that was a little bit of an adjustment for us. But like I said before, once the team grabbed a hold of it, the various sub-teams, we broke our project team down into various sub-teams, which I suppose is standard. 
I was really happy with the way folks really grabbed the work and just owned it. And so that was a little bit of a change because I think everybody's head down doing what they do, their daily work. And then it's like, hey, we're going to launch this product. And for an organization that maybe hasn't done that a lot in the last eight years or so, I think it felt like a burden at the beginning. But I think it's something that we're going to be really proud of when it hits the market and we get a membership we can help. That's great. And Amy, what advice would you give to a plan that made the decision or gets pushed through the door and they have to be a DSNP? What guidance or advice would you give them? I would say probably the best advice I could share would be to make sure your team, think through the team that that you're going to gather in two different ways because your DSNP, you're going to be doing two very different types of work. The building of the model of care document it's an accreditation document. So if your health plan does happen to have any sort of accreditation department or any sort of NCQA certification, involving that staff that's familiar with the layout, the way NCQA likes to see documents would be critical because it would save a lot of training and explaining to somebody how to compile that document. Also, I would say understanding that your model of care document is something that is meant to be agile and changed. And it is meant to be your best outline of how your health plan is doing this. Yet at the end of the day, you have to have ownership and continuous ownership of that document and updating as your plan changes, because we can have the best plan aligned and think that it's going to go. But as we would move forward, we would decide we would have to tweak it. So having solid ownership of that document, and then just kind of involving the right people from the beginning. We had moved, Mark alluded to getting the team rallied. We moved from a fairly structured project management organization and are transitioning to a much more agile-based change-embracing organization. And that culture shift was happening at the same time we were working through our DSNP. So our staff were learning to work differently And it turned out that being able to work in a much more agile, casual, creative way on this project was exactly what needed to happen. So having a less standard approach may be better if your company is typically used to executing projects in a very standard and structured project management-based way. You may be in for a surprise because things don't go super standard when you're working on this. There are a lot of tethers that are unique that your that health insurance is not used to dealing with. So just be ready to be flexible and also look at things very, very different and outside the box because the membership and the members that we have are not typical, go get a service, pay for the service, and we will see them later. We have a very deep partnership with these members. There's a lot of trust built. So making sure that you look at every angle of this member and how to support them from the very beginning. And understanding what Quartz did, which I love, is we embraced the DSNP as our baseline way to handle all of our members. So this really changed the way all of our commercial plans are being looked at as well in Medicare. And we're going to be offering benefits and different things to all of our membership because of this because it makes you realize that every single member, regardless of decent or not, members can deal with food insecurity, transportation issues, everything. So it really does broaden your way of looking at your membership in general, and you should allow that to happen because it will in turn help you innovate and be a better insurer. 
I think that that's terrific guidance. And, and I think, you know, what we learn from the DSNP is the whole person is who we're dealing with. And it's not just one department and a different department and then another function separated. It's everybody aware of who that member is and what their needs are or might be and how to connect them to the right resources to get their needs and goals met and addressed. And I I think you're kind of a shining example of taking that journey. Thank you so much, Mark and Amy, for being on the show today. It's been such a great pleasure to talk to you both. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please remember to leave a review and subscribe. I'm your host, Shelley Stevenson, and this has been Changing Healthcare, a podcast about accelerating transformation. Mm-hmm.